I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. In the library where there is not one gay poem, not even Cavafy eyeing his grappa sozzled lads, I open again the golden treasury of English verse and write cock in the margin. Ink stains my fingers. Words stretch to diagrams, birth beards and thighs, shoulders, forgies. One biro boy rubs his hard-on against the body of a sonnet. Another bears his hole beside some larkin. A blue sailor spooges over Canto 12. Then I see it. Nestled like a mushroom in moss, tongue true and vaunt, a queer subtext, and my pen becomes an indigo highlighter, inking up what the editor could not, would not, the violet hour of these men hidden deep within verse. I underline those that nature, not the printer, had pricked out, Hmm. rimming each delicate stanza in cerulean, Illuminating the readers to come. Um, <laughs> um, I grew up um, under the shadow of Section 28, which was a particularly cruel piece of legislation, which I'm sure uh, some people here will remember. And it kind of forbade the promotion of homosexuality. And when they said promotion, they really meant talking about it. So you couldn't really talk about it. So, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of gay men and gay women were denied adequate sexual education um, and also gay literature as well. Um, And this poem is uh, really about hunting for something which wasn't there in the 90s when I was growing up and so desperate for it. But uh, faggots can be really sneaky under censorship, so we learn to kind of read deeper and harder. Um, And so my kind of first touch with kind of queer literature ended up being Shakespeare, Gerald Manley Hopkins, even a bit of T.S. Eliot. I think it's there. I don't know. So, yeah, uh, maybe that started me on the path to being a poet. Uh, I don't know. it's really nice to be here. Um, it's really lovely to be with Kave, um, and uh, he's going to read next. So I'm not going to keep you very long because uh, you're going to be amazing, and I want to hear what you're going to read. So, um, 
Um, but yeah, um, okay. So I grew up um, in suburbia, and um, we had um, nothing wrong with suburbia. It was great. I had many um, unsatisfactory sexual experiences there. So um, I um, we had um, we had a fishmonger who would come like door to door, like selling fish, which like seems like a really weird, archaic thing now. But like I don't know, other people have told me they did have fishmongers with vans. So. I don't know. You're nodding, Rebecca. You had a fishmonger. Oh, you had him in Croydon too. Yay! Hooray! <laughs> cool. So. Oh, you've got a fishmonger. Okay, amazing. So everyone's got a fishmonger. This is great. Yeah. Any anyone else? Anyone from North London? So, um, well, no. Th th this is great. So I don't feel so crazy. But always when the fishman came to kind of like call, I would feel incredibly kind of like. Um, I don't know, like switched on and alive because there was this like strange man coming to the house and he kind of wore this coat spattered with blood and he had this <laughs> van full of like amazing smells and stuff. So the fishmonger coming was always a great thing for me. So uh, fishmonger. Every Thursday he came to call in his blood-licked surgeon's coat. And if my parents were out... I knew to order nothing but eggs, as his prices for fish were far too dear. Once, he took me into his van, row upon row of gleaming flanks, the rough brick armour of crabs, the stopped hearts of bivalves pickled in brine, all resting on clouds of ice. He let me douse his catch in ammonia, a secret to keep their sparkle, he said. And as I sprayed, they spluttered back to life, mouths gurning for water, gills rippling like Venetian blinds, coppers and silvers flashing and lathering. I heard the mighty roar of the sea surround his van-like traffic. He took me into his capable arms, and I did not cry out. He fed me prawns to calm me, wiped the brine from my lips, let me try my first razor clam, unzipped from its pale, hard shell, the tip soft and white and saline. In that battered old transit, I took the whole ocean into my mouth, and he sent me home with a dozen eggs. So no one would be any the wiser. Shortly after, my parents started going to Sainsbury's for their food. <laughs> so, uh, don't know why that would. Happen. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so um, uh, my book is called Soho uh, for two reasons. Um, uh, there's a song, uh, song cycle, there's a poetry cycle in there, I wish there was a song cycle. Uh, there's a cycle of poems there where I kind of put uh, Paul Verlaine, who's an amazing 19th century symbolist poet, um, I kind of make him go to today's Soho and kind of wander around and go on Grinder and go to a gay sauna and that kind of stuff. Um, and he has fun. Um, but there's also um, a longer poem towards the end um, in where I try to look at Soho, the the place just down the road, like really just down the road. I feel like we're really close to it here. Um, through the prism of kind of gay identity or gay belonging. Um, for a long time, I've wanted to try and write about gay ancestry and 
I've always felt really untethered and really unable to do that because I haven't had any familial links and uh, I don't know if there's really a genetic link, although there is some proof to that. Uh, there is no queer holy land. Um, well, maybe Soho kind of is a queer holy land in a, in a way. I don't know. So there's, But there's been a lot of questions for me around writing about gay ancestry. And um, I was going to do a PhD on it, actually, with, uh, with Hannah, remember? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. she's like, oh yeah, that that really memorable uh, yeah, PhD submission. Yeah, uh, but I didn't. Know. I didn't. Know. <laughs> no, Jesus, Jesus. you were amazing. You really helped me with my proposal. Yeah, <laughs> but but I didn't. I didn't get my PhD, so I kind of wrote the critical part of it anyway. So I don't, I don't know. Um, but um, yeah, let's <laughs> just. Yeah, so, um, yeah, but um, so I kind of um, started thinking about um, trying to do things that I hadn't done before, like linking, uh, I don't know, like the politics of Soho and, you know, the kind of economics of Soho and also my personal, supposedly personal experience in there. And I kind of, um, it's kind of a big mishmash of, uh, of places, of, of influences, really. Um, but it all tries to, I suppose, um, talk about gay ancestry and, and where I'm from, really. Um, uh, you, you don't really need to know anything, I don't suppose. Uh, all the way through the poem, there's kind of uh, references to gay bars and gay places, but both kind of like um, from a long time ago and also kind of more recent. So there's like man bar, video bar. Who remembers that place? No one. Oh, Jane does. Yes. <laughs> Phew. Okay, cool. Uh, man bar, video bar versus like Mary, Mother Claps, Molly House and places like that. That runs through the whole poem. So, But I think whilst I was writing it, I found that Soho was a really sort of contentious kind of like um, symbol because, of course, like it's been a place of massive persecution, surveillance by the police. There have been raids, both historic and modern, on gay places. Uh, the domestic terrorism has taken place in Soho, constant homophobic attacks. Um, and then weirdly, like actually what seems to maybe, what seems like is gonna be Soho's undoing is kind of like landlords and consumerism and capitalism. So who saw that coming? You know, meanwhile, it's the kind of place where I lost my virginity and did some really amazing dancing to Destiny's Child. And you know, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. So um, the poem is nine sections. I'm only gonna read three, um, few, I hear a lot of people saying. So um, I'm just gonna read these, so. <clears throat> oh my Soho. You're in lashed maze of cobble and haybrick. Oh, chunder-fugged, rosy-lit, cliché-worthy quadrant. I could not call you beauteous, but nightly I've strolled your Shaftesbury slums for a bout of wink and fumble. Or hopped the iron-wrought gates of Soho Square, dank-scented potagerie, to harvest night-blooming buds under ripening street lamps or slope to the Broadwick bog house where the cisterns trickle in harmony like the three-stringed lyre, where the glory holes flicker pink-tongued, or jump the queue for man-bar, video-bar, sweaty fluoro-phoenix risen from the foundations of Margaret Clapp's Molly House, all this in lithe Eros's crosshairs, queer angel atop the meat rack of Cleveland Street. Eros wants me come crazy, boshed on lust, but I need a clear head for this trip. 
I am to be homo historian, mean to turn biogrope to biography, foreskin to forebearer. Oh my Soho, let me linger out tonight. I have rainbow warriors to exhume. Five. And I should say that reportedly um, Soho, or more accurately, uh, the Swiss Tavern and Subway, uh, the dance bar in the 80s, were reportedly the birthplace of HIV in the UK. Five. Before Sunday jazz at Compton's was the sickly Swiss Tavern, its bruised dark windows, boisterous backroom, posters of symptoms, burying photocopied lesions, the Rorschach of KS, and the new scare lingo PCP, LAV, GRID. So is illness our ancestor? And how many times have I queued for a prick in the shadow of Subway, subwoofing birthplace of the UK virus to feel made clean? I have touched genocide with my tongue again and again and somehow learnt nothing but fear. And how many of us wasted on AZT, on silence, on blood hysteria, before Espress Clinic set up their lunch hour prick and goes, before Truvada whore became a hashtag. Oh, how far we've come since the silver nose of syphilis, since the Santa Maria's cargoed gonorrhea. Oh my Soho, just how did our gorgeous species survive the parliamentarian's drug-embargoing slaughter? Eight. But how many brothers sat in stripes after the celebrated law change? Sodomy, our lusty labor of love, was a pastime only for those with domestic privacy, doors, walls, curtains, but what if Soho was your house? And how did they feed us this hoax of legality when thousands of comrades still throng the sex offenders register, cottaging, cruising, innocent importuning, even open mouth kissing sent us to the dock, postured in shame? Oh my Soho, your neon labyrinth became our plain sight hidey hole. And who were these sheathed men, helmeted, rubber-gloved, raiding bars, saunas, WCs, our disorderly houses one by one? Even holding hands could mean, can still mean, a hospital visit, body in splints. And who am I to write, us, legal ever since I was born? Poof, fag, bum chum, fudge packer, the occasional fist, my only hard labors. Such ripe fanfares for a boy deviant, a back row punching bag in the biology lab when section 28 was making us sick, sicker. Oh my Soho, am I being ungrateful? All this almost progress, 2018, and we've zipped from mental illness to supposed equal in only 147 years, contrary sexual sensationists to citizens worthy of a lifestyle. But did we down our placards for the sake of a good party, our very own ghetto? Oh my Soho, spin me back to your parades, your protests, your pride, 
when a rainbow flag was a sigil and a cocktail was flaming. Oh my Soho, was there ever an invulnerable queer body? And Thank you. Um, I'm just going to finish with a poem about gay pornography. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, and I can't wait to hear Cover Coverboys. Top shelf rags are not always pink curves and tits. Sometimes an out-of-date Latin inches hides forgotten behind razzle. Three pixelated pricks have stayed this hard since 2005. <laughs> Jose, Raul, Hot Rod have stood inked, jaw-locked in a three-way French for some nine rugged years. Pecs still greasy, tans Miami orange, fingers tucked into each other's pits. Interests include PS3, beer, skateboarding, fisting, being taken for expensive meals. This is the future I wish for them. Open-mouthed, wanton, lithe and toned. Instead of the all too real, Wikipedia tells me Hot Rod married a girl appalled by his past. Raul serving time for battery in Bristol, Texas, a born-again homophobe, and Jose's heart exploded on stage at Pride. Too much love, or rather crystal. Thank you. We got to convince Richard to put out an audio tape of those as well, because uh, that was that was something. My name is Kav Akbar. Um, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to be in this space. I was just downstairs marveling at the poetry walls uh, <laughs> with stress on the plural there. Uh, what a wildness that you guys have these things. Uh, there's, a, there's like one poetry bookstore, poetry only bookstore in, um, in New York, uh, Burroughs, which is sort of similar in one in open books that has, but you know, you, in Seattle, but you really have to travel. I'm just, not, I'm just gonna read a poem. <laughs> but thank you all for being here. Um, this is called Some Boys Aren't Born, They Bubble. Some boys aren't born, they bubble up from the Earth's crust, land safely around kitchen tables, green globes of fruit already in their mouths. When they find themselves crying, these boys stop crying. They moan more than other boys. They do as desire demands. When they dance, their bodies plunge into space and recover. The music stays in their breastbones. They sing songs about storms, then dry their shoes on porches. These boys are so cold, their pilot lights never light. They buy the best heat money can buy blue flames, swamp smoke. They are desperate to lick and be licked. Sometimes one will eat all the food in a house or break every bone in his jaw. Sometimes one will disappear into himself like a ram charging a mirror. When this happens, they all feel it afterwards. The others dream of rain, their pupils boil. They light black candles and pray the only prayer they know, oh Lord. Spare this body, set fire to another. Uh, we were told that Ann Carson came into this bookstore earlier. 
uh, and was told about this reading, and she was like, that sounds lovely, but we're going to go see Julius Caesar. Uh, <laughs> and I just think that that's the coolest thing. <laughs> I'm still kind of floating a few inches off the ground about that, but I was like that close. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, God, that fishmonger. <laughs> Need to find me a fishmonger. Uh, uh, my, I was born in Tehran, and my first language was Farsi, but when we came to America, my parents stopped speaking it. They wanted me to get good at English quickly and uh, wanted me to do good on standardized tests or whatever um, already. You know, I was two and a half, but, um, but you know, it's very on brand for them. Uh, uh, so they stopped speaking Farsi, so consequentially, I don't really speak it anymore. I speak about as much as a two-year-old speaks, which is a strange thing. This is called, Do You Speak Persian? Some days, we can see Venus in mid-afternoon. Then, at night, stars separated by billions of miles. Light traveling years to die in the back of an eye? Is there a vocabulary for this? One to make dailiness amplify and not diminish wonder? I've been so careless with the words I already have. I don't remember how to say home in my first language or lonely or light. I remember only the Lambert Tangshode, I miss you, and Shebeche, good night. How's school going, Kavajun? The Lambert Tangshode, are you still drinking? Shebeche. For so long, every step I've taken has been from one tongue to another. To order the world, I need, you need, he, she, it needs. The rest left to a hungry jackal in the back of my brain. Right now, our moon looks like a pale cabbage rose. The Lambrat Tangshode. We are forever folding into the night. Shebacher. This poem is called Vines. There are fat, wet vines creeping into my house through the pipes and through the walls, gentle as blue flames. They curl into my living. There is ice in my attic, sugar on my tile. I am present and useless like a nose torn from a face and set in a bowl. When I saw God, I used the wrong pronouns. God bricked up my mouth hole. His fists were white as gold. There were roaches in my beard. Now I live like a widow. Every day a heave of knitting patterns and sex toys. My family speaks of me with such pride. Nunesh Turokan, they say. His bread is in oil. I thank them for that and for their chromosomes, most of which have been lovely. I am lovely too. My body is hard and choked with juice like a plastic throat stuffed with real grapes. My turn-ons include Ovid and fake leather. 
My turnoffs have all been ushered into the basement. I'll drink to them and to any victory. The vines are all growing toward the foot of my bed. I am waiting for them to come under the covers. I am the only person still in this house. There is no one here to look away. This is a little love poem. It's called In the Beginning. Holding a mirror under your nose, I swore I could see your soul like a knot in a harp string. It looked hard and pluckable. I wanted to feed you plate after plate of watermelon, even the rinds. I wanted to give you a garnet as big as a hand fruit. We were saying words constantly every day, a whole new set thread count, violin, beef cheek, half our bones lived in our hands and feet. They still do. They're the ones most likely to crack, to ache like the sky after a storm. I held your face up to my face, your eyes level with mine. I could see through your pupils into the flower, into the mouth of the flower. It said, baby eats what mommy eats. We filled our ashtrays with pistachio shells. We drank hot tea from plastic cups. This is a fun space. <laughs> you could get used to this. I mean, just like the amongness, the energy, not like having a captive audience, but you know, like <laughs> the, uh, just the, the general aura. Certainly listening to Richard's poems. I think that there's going to be time for some conversation after this. Not that this isn't a conversation, but like some conversation in which you guys speak in the air too. This is called, you guys know this exclamation, like, like, my kingdom for a croissant, or <laughs> whatever it is that you most desire in that moment. I've <laughs> uh, seen a lot of croissants. You guys have more croissants here than we have back in America. Um, this is called, my kingdom for a murmur of fanfare. It's common to live properly, to pretend you don't feel heat, or grief, wave nightly at Miss Fugue and Mr. Goggles before diving into your nightcap, before reading yourself a bedtime story, or watching your beloved sink to the bottom of a lake and noting his absence in your log. The next day, you drop his clothes off at goodwill like a sack of mail from a warplane, then hobble back to your hovel like a knight moving only in L's. It is comfortable to be alive this way, especially now, but it makes you so vulnerable to shock. You ignore the mortgage and find a falconer's glove in your yard, whole hand still inside. Or you arrive home after a long day to discover your children have grown suddenly hideous and unlovable. What I'm trying to say is, I think it's okay to accelerate around corners, to grunt back at the mailman and swallow all your laundry quarters. So much of everything is dumb baffle. Water puts out fire. My diseases can become your diseases. And two hounds will fight over a feather because feathers are strange. All I want is to finally take off my cowboy hat and show you my jeweled horns. If we slow dance, 
I will ask you not to tug on them, but secretly, I will want that very much. <laughs> when I was talking to Richard downstairs about how um, growing up in America, after we came to America, I didn't meet my first Iranian person till I was in college, um, who was out, I mean, my first Iranian outside of my, middle, my immediate family. Um, and so I was always very sort of hungry for connections to that part of me, right? Um, and part of that was uh, there's this Persian restaurant in Chicago, uh, which, you know, we always lived between like four and eight hours away from Chicago. So uh, we would like once a year take these trips into Chicago to go to this Persian restaurant, which was called Reza's Restaurant, um, to, you know, eat Persian food. And it was like this thing where I would look forward to it weeks in advance, uh, and I would know what I was going to order. Uh, and like it was, it literally is this thing where to this day, the sight of the Chicago skyline makes me hungry. Like I will like, <laughs> it's like Pavlov's skyline. Like I really, really like, I, uh, and uh, anyways, so this is, this is a poem uh, that has that in it. It's called Reza's Restaurant, Chicago, 1997. The waiters milled about, filling sumac shakers, clearing away plates of onion and radish. My father pointed to each person, whispered, Persian, about the old man with the silver beard, whispered, Arab, about the woman with the eye mole, Persian, the teenager pouring water, white, the man on the phone. I was eight and watching and amazed, I asked how he could possibly tell when they were all brown-skinned, dark-haired like us. Almost everyone in that restaurant looked like us. He smiled a proud little smile, a warm nest of lips, said, it's easy, said, we're just uglier. He returned to his lamb, but I was baffled, hardly touched my thema. I had huge glasses and bad teeth. I felt plenty Persian when the woman with light eyes and blonde brown hair left our check. My father looked at me. I said, Arab? He shook his head, laughed. We drove home. I grew up. It took years to put together what my father meant that day. My father, who listened exclusively to the Rolling Stones, who called the Beatles a band for girls. My father, who wore only black, even around the house, whose arms could cut chicken wire and make stew and bulged with old farm scars. My father, my father, my father built the world. The first sound I ever heard was his voice whispering the azan in my right ear. I didn't need anything else. My father cherished that we were ugly, so being ugly was blessed. I smiled with all my teeth. Maybe two more. Is that okay? okay. Thanks. And then we'll talk, and then we'll talk. Um, this poem is called Ways to Harm a Thing. Throw scissors at it. Fill it with straw and set it on fire or set it off for the colonies with only some books and dinner plates and a stuffed bear named Friend Bear for me to lose in New Jersey. Did I say me? Things have been getting less and less hypothetical since I unhitched myself from your bedpost. Everyone I love is too modern to be caught grieving. 
In order to be consumed, first you need to be consumable. But there is not a single part of you I could fit in my mouth. In a dream, I pull back your foreskin and reveal a fat vase stuffed with crow feathers. This seems a faithful translation of the real thing. Another way to harm something is to melt its fuse box, make it learn to live in the dark. I still want to suck the bones out from your hands, plant them like the seeds we found in an antique textbook, though those never sprouted and may not have even been seeds. When I was a sailor, I found a sunken ziggurat, spent weeks diving through room after room, discovering this or that sacred shroud. One way to bury something is to bury it forever. When I was water, you poured me out over the dirt. This poem is called, Every Drunk Wants to Die Sober, It's How We Beat the Game. Hazreta Ali, son-in-law of the prophet, was martyred by a poison sword while saying his evening prayers, his final words, I am successful. I am successful. I want to carve it into my forehead. I've been cut into before. It barely hurt. I found my body to be hard and bloodless as glass. Still, for effect, I tore my shirt to tourniquets. Let me now be calm for one fucking second. Let me be open to revision. Eternity looms in the corner like a home invader saying, don't mind me, I'm just here to watch you nap. If you throw prayer beads at a ghost, they will cut through him soft as a saber through silk. I finally have answers to the questions I taught my mother not to ask, but now she won't ask them. As a child, I was so tiny and sweet, she would tuck me in, saying, Mushbukuradet, a mouse should eat you. I melted away that sweet, like sugar and water, like once fresh honey dripping down a thigh. Today, I lean on habit and rarely unstrap my muzzle. It's hard to speak of something so gauche as ambition while the whole wheezing mosaic chips away. But let it be known, I do hope one day to be free of this body's dry wood. If living proves anything, it's that such astonishment is possible. The kite loosed from its string, outpaces its shadow. An olive tree explodes into the sky, dazzling even the night. I don't understand the words I babble in home movies from Tehran, but I assume they were lovely. I have always been a tank. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Angle of tongue and pretty want. In Islam, there are prayers to return almost anything, even prayers to return faith. I have been going through book after book, pushing the sounds through my teeth. I will keep making these noises as long as deemed necessary until there is nothing left of me to forgive. Okay, thank you so much. That thank was you. totally amazing. Like, that was really incredible. Uh, I so feel like wonderful. our poems, I feel like our poems are very, very sort of spiritually tethered to the same animal. That sounds, what animal? That sounds great. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, I'm imagining both scales and wings. Yeah, okay, I can, I can go with that. Yeah. That sounds, that yeah, sounds yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about wonder. Haha, <laughs> yes, <laughs> gladly. Um, no, I, uh, you know, this is, this is this is the sort of uh, infinite question, right? Yeah. Um, I think that uh, I talk about wonder a lot, um, but it's because you know what else is there to talk about, right? Well, but your book does talk about you know uh, absence, masculinity, like addiction, but everywhere it's always underpinned by like you're looking at mushrooms and orchids and mm-hmm. wild mint, and there's almost this like Whitman-esque sort of mm-hmm. sense to wonder, like you're trying to charge us and make us look. Sure, sure, sure. Well, that sort of I mean Whitman Whitman's wonder worked through a kind of supersaturation, right? It was like if we include enough of this, then you will get the sense of the overwhelm, right? Brian Eno talks about um, the crack in a blues record when the when the singer's voice cracks being uh, the mark of an event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it. Right, that's what he says. Yeah. An, a, a, the mark of an, an event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it. Right, the crack in the blues singer's voice, the the black and white static on VHS film. Right, um, and I'm so 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 invested in the ways that we can make poems crack in these ways. You know what I mean? Like how, how, do we, how do we get these cracks? Because what we're talking about is way too massive to be, uh, to be sort of scored with these runes that we've agreed correspond to language, right? You know, the, the, the kinds of wonder that is in your poetry uh, is way, way, way too massive to simply say, like, this is exactly what it was. But what we can do is sort of say, this is what this part felt like, and this is what this part felt like. You know the thing about the blindfolded people touching the elephant, you know? Mm-hmm. And one person mm-hmm. is grabbing the tail, and uh, that person says, oh, it's, it's very hairy, you know? And one person is t- grabbing the tusk and saying, oh, it's like an elephant is bone heart, you know? And mm-hmm. they're all touching different parts of the element. And this is what poetry lets us do, right? We touch different parts of the animal. I don't know if that's making sense at all. Yeah, right? yeah, I, I get it. I get um, it. touching the elephant. Touching the elephant. Feeling the elephant elephant blindfolded. Um, But but no, I mean, all of the the art that interests me uh, tends to orbit this nucleus of wonder, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, wonder at the beauty of the fishmonger, or wonder at grief, or wonder at dying, or wonder at aggression earned, you know? Everything is everything is orbiting this nucleus of curiosity, right? Mm. Um, and so, how do we how do we build that into a poem, and how do we show the limitations of the vehicle, right? How do we show the the fractures in the vehicle? You know, this this type of pottery where the the pot breaks and then you reseal it with gold, and mm. then that becomes part of the piece. You know, mm-hmm. this is what I'm interested in when I think about wonder and poetry. Yeah. And tell me about your poetic logic, because mm. you you seem you do this kind of 
high wire trick from image or comparison to image or comparison. You're not so interested in kind of linear narratives. Like in Some Boys Aren't Born, They Bubble, we move from like the earth's crust to the kitchen table yeah, yeah, with the yeah. green globes on it. Like, what's your journey through a poem? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about orbiting this nucleus of wonder, and I think that the Bohr model of the atom is actually really useful when we're having these kinds of conversations. Although, if you have even like a rudimentary understanding of the Bohr model of the atom, please don't correct me. Um, <laughs> uh, but from what I understand, uh, you know, the idea is that you have this nucleus, right, of protons and neutrons, and then you have the electrons, like, sort of floating around it. So, so in, that, in that nucleus, right, that is your catalyzing agent. That is your instigator. That is your uh, duende. That is your Greshener and your whatever, whatever, you know, the, your Dover Beach. Um, uh, and then all of the language of the poem is sort of what is orbiting around it, right? Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not passing through that nucleus. It's not sort of like plotting through that nucleus in a sort of linear way. It's not plotting through the about. It is sort of orbiting the about, you know? And I think that you're, I think that you're writing, you know, especially the Soho Suite was working in a very similar fashion, right? It was not saying like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You know, it was very sort of associative and it was sort of building an accumulation of logic, right? It's, it's, it's a sort of, it's not this denotative experience of language where I say this and it gets you to say this and then, you know, it's not this transactional language. It is a very sort of, uh, it is more invested in the kinds of logic that we know from dream, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, that is what I would say about that. Downstairs we were talking a little bit about the idea of reverse engineering an image that yeah. you maybe wanted to fit into something or you knew was sort of uh, in, in, in the field of the poem you were working in, yeah. right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So how, how do you reverse engineer an image? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so we were talking about this downstairs, but so for instance in the poem, Some Boys Aren't Born, They Bubble, there's this image of the ram charging a mirror, right? Uh, which, you know, if a ram catches a reflection of himself. I don't know how rams work, but uh, <laughs> but you know, it is conceivable that a ram that catches a catches a image of itself would want to charge that image, right? In my head, in the way that the mythological rams of my psychic ecosystem work, that is what they do, right? Um, and so I had this image, right? And it felt very sort of tonally a part of this poem, right? Mm -hmm. It felt very, very sort of like that image felt right to me, but I didn't have like the, you know, such an, you know, like, the, I didn't have the first part of the metaphor, right? I didn't have the tenor, I just had the vehicle. You know what I mean? So it, when we talk about reverse engineering, we're talking about moving from, we're, we're talking about moving from vehicle to tenor instead of the way that poets usually work, which is moving from tenor to vehicle, right? You, you say, like, I want something that is very sad, like me. Uh, and so you say, like, the rain pouring down the windowsill or whatever the fuck. And so, uh, sorry. <laughs> rain, rain is sad. Rain is yeah, sad. rain is sad. Rain is sad. Uh, some rain. I don't know. Uh, um, what are we? Uh, but no, I mean, so you, this is how poets normally work, right? You have the, catalyze, the catalyzing emotional cue, and then you work into the image. But I often work the other way, you know? Like, I have an image that I know belongs in the poem, that I know from the associative logic, again, of my sort of unique set of unprecedented psychic algorithms. We all have them. Uh, I'm not like... I'm not like the special person who is uniquely capable of producing singular psychic algorithms. We're all uh, living unprecedented lives that have never existed before on the planet Earth, right? Um, and so we all have these sorts of sets of registers of images and these, these sorts of tonal registers that make sense to each other in the way that only our unique sort of associative thumbprints mm. arrange them, right? 
Um, and so for me, a lot of the work of the poem is figuring out how to uh, how to productively string them together in a way that is cohesive and in a way that um, makes sense with what I'm trying to say or what what the images are trying to say. Yeah, totally. Um, things have been getting less and less hypothetical. Talk to me <laughs> about the idea of honesty. Because on, online there's reviews of your books, which, which is a wonderful book. Sure. There's so many reviews that say, that praise the honesty in the book and the yeah. honesty in your writing. But, you know, poetic honesty is very different to biographical honesty, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, there's a poem in the book about uh, someone free-floating in space, right, cut the, with their umbilicus to the space station severed and they're just sort of free-floating in space. I didn't read it, but, um, but you know, I have never been in space. I know, hold your, hold your shock and dismay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've never been to outer space. Uh, and, you know, I think that oftentimes when people are praising honesty in a collection, what they're actually doing is praising a kind of vulnerability or yeah. praising a kind of... Um, refusal to valorize experience um, or resistance to valorizing experience. But I also think, you know, this language is coded in a certain way. Um, and this is something that I think about a lot where when I am praised for the vulnerability of my writing, um, I'm, ex I'm being given praise that might not, that is given to me on the basis of what people expect from uh, a cis-bodied male poet, right? Which is to say, like, people expect male poets to be sort of austere and sort of stoic, right? Um, whereas a female poet who is being just as vulnerable, just as, or, you know, more vulnerable, more, more honest, mm -hmm. you know, uh, is often, you know, is often talked about as being sentimental or, you know, this is, these are very sort of like gender, these are mm -hmm. very sort of gendered words or being emotional or being, um, you know, or being very, very, you know, one of one of these sorts of euphemistic ways of saying like sa overly saccharine, right? Mm -hmm. We see this in the conversations surrounding like Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath versus the work of like Berryman and Lowell. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I'm very, very aware of like when someone says like, "Oh, Kava's work is very honest or very vulnerable," that I'm receiving praise for something that really has nothing to do with me. You know, I am I am saying the same things that any number of female poets have said before in extraordinary language and, you know, non-binary non poets and, you know, all, but because of the expectations of my performed gender, um, uh, I, people, people are coming into the poems and being surprised. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. of course. There's a really interesting, you, did you read the article on VQR, the website that talked about the, towards, yeah, towards yeah, a new masculinity? Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's talking about um, the contrast in your in your book the kind mm -hmm. of uh the bestial masculinity in mm -hmm. some of the poems but then also you writing things like will i ever be a great man will i ever be one of the guys and picking up on yeah. that sort of conflict within your own writing about masculinity how do you feel about masculinity yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you know, there, there, there are poems in the book that are very, very bestial and very, very sort of feral and that feel to me to be very sort of uh, vicious in ways. And then there are poems in the book about me trying on bras, mm. you know, um, and both are me. You know what I mean? Mm. Like both are elements of my masculinity as, it, that I, as I've received it and as I have performed it in my life, you know. Mm. Um, and it all feels true to me. And, a, and a po the beautiful thing about a book of poetry is that you know, you don't have to check boxes, you know what I mean? You don't have to say, like, 
uh, I am this sort of man. You know what I mean? Like a, a po poetry affords us complexity. Poetry affords us nuance. You know, mm -hmm. in really, really beautiful and astounding ways. So, um, you know, so much of the book is about resistance to taxonomization. You know, it, it's right there in the title. You know, calling a wolf a wolf comes from a poem in which I said, you know, I'm talking about the problem and I'm saying, you know, as if calling a wolf a wolf would dull its fangs. You know, it wouldn't. You know, you can give something a name even once you learn its name, but it's not really going to do anything about it. You know what I mean? So a lot of the book is about the, the powers that naming does and doesn't give something and the impotence of naming, right? Um, and I'm much more interested in actions, you know, than names. Um, well, sometimes when you write in the book about masculinity or male figures, there's a sense of coldness, which I'm really interested by, because there's so much sort of warmth and combustibility mm. and fire in the book. But sometimes when you write about boys, there's these cold flames or blue flames, mm. the pilot lights going out. Yeah, 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 um, yeah that's interesting. Yeah, so w w what's happening there? Yeah, well, you know, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't What's know. going on with that? Yeah, like, give like, us an answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I don't know. I feel like maybe I should. For that's that's a question that I should be like lying down on a couch. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't know. You know, um, I don't know. Don't I don't know. That. No, you've said me. No, I was I, just kind of like you know making. Sure, sure, sure. A, well, making I mean, a I think that yeah. I think that you know, uh, one sort of ascribes colors and temperatures to certain periods of one's life. Mm. Um, uh, in one, in one, in you know, you have your halcyon days, or you know what I mean. We talk mm. about, we talk about, we use this sort of language to talk about history, um, and I think that maybe it's related to that. But I don't want to say too much more about it without mm. actually thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, no, no, of course. Yeah, um, I also want to ask you about spirituality. It's really mm. interesting how God is in the book, or there's yeah. an awareness. Of God in the book, yeah, uh, but it's a really sort of conflicted yeah. awareness. Like sometimes you're you're really you seem very angry at God, and you say, mm. you know, God God maybe isn't for us or for the reader. But then there's other bits where you say, may God beat us awake, mm -hmm. and you're almost wanting God to kind of you know bring us to attention. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book is an addiction recovery narrative, um, and. It is unhyperbolic to say that I was dying in a very, very literal capacity. I mean, I was not some sort of like spiritual death or you know whatever. I mean, I was my liver was, uh, and um, and then I didn't. I didn't die when many people around me did. Um, uh, and uh, and I didn't behave any differently than they did. I didn't. I wasn't any less aggressive in my use or any more precautious. You know what I mean? Many people around me died, and I didn't. Um, and when I stopped, it wasn't because I drove my car into a police officer or because I, you know, robbed a Wendy's or whatever. Uh, I, it was. I woke up one morning and I got help, uh, and there wasn't this sort of catalyzing agent. Um, and. So I think that when you've been the beneficiary of a bit of grace that rocks through your dense fog of unknowing, uh, or a dense fog of unknowing, uh, one becomes interested in what that was. You know, um, I, I don't have any answers. I'm just as confused as anyone. Um, but, uh, but I'm certainly interested in it. And poetry is the place that you go to uh, to stick your thumb into that which aggravates your curiosity, you know? Um, 
and so I'm I'm endlessly curious about it. I will I will never you know it's horizontal. You know you all, I'll always march toward this curiosity, and I'll never arrive at any sort of answer. You know, mm -hmm. but uh, but I'm endlessly curious about it. You know, there there are bodily intelligences at work. You know, when a when a pregnant woman is deficient in iron, she'll sometimes she'll crave dirt. You know, she, because there is iron in dirt. That's not because she's consciously thinking, oh, there is iron in dirt, so I will eat it. You know, but there are, there are these kinds of bodily intelligences, too, you know, and that is a kind of divinity. That is a kind of higher power. Um, uh, I'm very interested in all of this. I'm very interested in all of this. I love the book's awareness of the everyday and dailiness. You talk about daily attention to wonder. Um, you also talk about um, the daily need to keep yourself alive by avoiding various things, by avoiding addiction and fighting addiction. Um, and I know that you write every day, um, and it seems like you have an incredible sense of sort of um, of the everyday in the face of poetry, which sometimes just people can think people think just takes such a huge amount of time, you know. Yeah. So this sense of dailiness is really refreshing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's also very easy because poetry is my favorite thing. You know, uh, James Dickey says uh, the thing that you have to understand if you write poetry or read poetry is that poetry is just the greatest goddamn thing that ever was in the history of the universe. That's an actual James Dickey quote. Um, and I, you know, I'm hardly in that, heartily, not hardly, heartily in that camp. Uh, you know, I, it is the great, it is the, it is the thing that brings me the most delight in this world. Um, and so it's very, very easy, as someone who is wired to press the joy button till it breaks, uh, I, I, it is very easy for me to spend a lot of time in my poetry, but I'll also say, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very much intertwined with my spiritual practice. Uh, it's very much intertwined with my political practice. Um, I think that, you know, you may not have heard, but America is undergoing a bit of a political crisis uh, <laughs> right now. Um, and so, you know, living under a fascistic regime, one of the, one of the, not one of the, the primary weapon that is used to suppress critical thinking is an overwhelm of meaningless language at every moment every turn there's just this massive overwhelm of vapid argle bargle right mm. um and what does poetry ask us to do poetry asks us to slow down our metabolization of language poetry asks us to be really really conscious of how language is entering us right uh and so in a time when the, the great weapon used to stifle critical thought is a raw overwhelm of meaningless language, when we have this tool that is constantly reminding us that, you know, Rita Dove says, language has integrity. You know, language has integrity. I can't, you know, I want to stamp it on my forehead. Uh, language has integrity. You know, it matters what we call things. Um, and so when you are reading a lot of poetry, you're constantly being reminded uh, of this. We're constantly being reminded to read language as if it matters, you know what I mean? Um, which is infinitely potent in 2018, I think. You know, it doesn't matter if you're reading a poem about uh, Gretchen Ern or a poem about a happy spider, you know, like it is all slowing down the way that you're thinking about language. Um, and, uh, and therefore, you know, every poem, it doesn't matter what the poem is, is like politically active, you know, there's no politically inert poetry anymore, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't know, that's a long No, that's great. To, There's yeah. no politically in that yeah. poem anymore. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, I think now might be a really good time to ask yeah, some yeah, questions yeah, yeah. Yeah, of you guys. So oh, yeah. If anyone has any questions for Carve? Or for Richard. You can, yeah. So this is kind of like a shout out for Dive Dapper, which I read loads of the interviews you've done on. 
dive dapper with poets. Um, and one of the things I really admire about you is this kind of sense of fandom that I, that really comes across. And it, I, I think that's unusual sometimes in in poets. People can hold their kind of fandom for other poets quite close to themselves. Sure. So I just wondered if you could talk a bit about the role fandom plays for you and how that influences your writing. Yeah, that's a beautiful question, Amy. So Amy's question was, uh, so I do this website called Dive Dapper where I interview my favorite poets and I sort of ask them questions about things and prod them into talking to me. I mean, I, I have been, you know, since I was like 13 years old, I've been writing fan mail to authors, you know, for whatever reason, uh, when I read something that really moves me, or if I listen to an album that really moves me, or uh, you know, whatever, uh, it becomes incumbent on me to relay to its creator uh, the virtues of the thing and and the effect that it's had on me. Um, and usually, you know, most of my childhood, that just meant you know I wrote these letters that never got answered. Uh, but. Uh, but actually, even that was like really, really marvelous because it helped me develop a bit of a clarity about like what my guiding aesthetic virtues were and what I was drawn to in art and what you know. And so even that was like really, really valuable to me. Um, but so I'm coming at I'm coming at poetry from the spirit of like, you know, uh, when I was 17 years old, I was doing this magazine in high school uh, called The Quirk. Um, actually, I mean, I started it when I was like 15 and it was like this little local general interest thing and I would write music reviews and make comics and stuff. But, um, but uh, when I was around 17, I became really, really interested in poetry uh, and I started just like writing letters and cold calling people and asking them to send me poems for my shitty little magazine that I stapled myself at my mom's work, you know. Um, and, you know, Yusuf Komanyaka sent me poems, like Robert Bly sent me po you know what I mean? Like these like titans <laughs> started sending me poems, you know what I mean? And like I just, I ran this, I was just this little 17 year old kid, you know? Um, this has been the sort of guiding principle of my poetic life. This stuff really, really excites me and it really matters to me. And I don't know why I would ever want to act like it didn't, you know? And it, like what is to be gained from saying, huh, you were okay tonight, Richard. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like who is that, who is that serving? Like, like I, don't know, I don't know what I'm saving that effusion for, you know? Like Richard's, Richard's poems that he read tonight were extraordinary. Like everyone in here felt that. You know what I mean? We all heard those poems in the air. We felt them move through us, and we were all we were all enraptured. You know what I mean? Like that was that was an incredible experience. That was an incredible experience that I had listening to those poems and like hearing them come out of your mouth and like seeing that they mattered to you. You know what I mean? Like like you being demonstratively invested in those poems was so powerful. You know, and every person in this room felt that. You know what I mean? And like, wh what is to be gained from me like withholding that? And like like what am I saving that? for you know what I mean I, I don't know I, I don't even know if I'm answering your question but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you cold called Mary Rufel didn't you yeah yeah I cold called Mary Rufel and like she was like how did you get this number uh, <laughs> and eventually we had a conversation for dive dapper which we parlayed into like an actual we write letters now you know oh, what I mean and like we parlayed that I, I parlayed that into an actual friendship you know what I mean um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that I've just sort of always been the beneficiary of a certain kind of shamelessness. <laughs> um, really enjoyed both readings. Um, I was going to say, um, it feels like as a, as a British reader of poetry in the past couple of years, mm -hmm. um, we've got a lot more poetry coming from the US in particular, mm. from places outside of the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was going to ask, um, well, how, 
Richard, how you feel that's changed how, how you kind of engage with poetry. And then I was going to ask if I could, because I know you, run a, you tweet loads of great poetry, mm-hmm. if you could recommend some US poets that you think should be read more widely. Sure, 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 sure. That's a beautiful question. Um, uh, I guess in answer to the first part of your question, maybe I don't feel like there's been a change for me. Like, I think I feel like I was always a kind of child of Whitman, basically. I mean, uh, he's a problematic figure and that kind of breaks my heart, but um, I've always kind of been a child of child of Whitman and his kind of approach to writing has always kind of uh, totally floored me, the way he looks at the world, wonder, and the way he thinks about the male body. I mean, yeah. he was kind of a forerunner for me. Um, you know, I mean, when he was writing, if you were found in bed with a guy, you would have got castrated and stuff. So something about his forward-looking nature has always kind of impressed me. and. Uh, but um, yeah, so I've always been looking to America, and um, the the fact that more American, I think maybe that more American poets are having UK editions of their book published over here, is amazing because now I don't need to wait like four weeks for them to arrive <laughs> by post. Do you know what I mean? So like you know, it's uh, yeah, it's a great thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I, it's been so thrilling to me. You know, I've been here for what like forty eight hours, maybe like maybe like fifty two or something like that. Uh, uh, but it's been just so, so, so nourishing for me to just like peruse bookshelves and see names that I am completely, you know what I mean? Like I'm so, I'm, I spent all of my time in poetry and like there, if there was a 25th hour in the day, I would be in poetry in that too. You know what I mean? Like it's all I ever do, but I'm so, you know, in America, like, you know, I, I know the American poetry scene pretty well, right? Um, but here it's like there are entire bookshelves where like I'll only recognize a couple names, you know, and that's thrilling. That is, I can't tell you how, I read with Montez Mehri um, on Monday night and it was like, it was like the clouds parted and an angel came through and like was blaring his trumpet and was just like, ah, poetry, you know what I mean? Like it was just like, it was that feeling again, like tonight, you know what I mean? Like just getting to encounter all these new poets is the most thrilling thing in the world to me. Um, which wasn't your question. Your question was, uh, <laughs> uh, your question was uh, some American poets you should be reading. Um, uh, the poet Francine J. Harris is one of my favorite American poets. Uh, if you if you remember nothing else about this, well, remember how great Richard was, and then uh, and then remember uh, to look up Francine J. Harris, Catherine with a K. Uh, just Google Francine J. Harris, Catherine, and it'll pop up. Uh, she, her, she's one of my favorite living poets and someone who I think people are starting to realize how important she is, but still, you know, I, uh, I think that, you know, she could use a greater readership uh, just given how completely landscape changing she was and is. Um, the poet Joss Charles is a, is a young poet. Um, they have one book out uh, already called Safe Space, but their new book is coming. It just won the National Poetry Series in the States, and I've been lucky enough to read it. Um, and it's it's a it's a manuscript that I have not stopped thinking about since I first read it like a year ago as like a PDF, which I never do, but I was so excited about it. Um, I, I just there's something about reading like more than three poems in a row on a computer screen that makes my eyes go across. But um, but that book it sort of mixes Chaucerian English with these like really really nuanced discussions of transness in 2018 and like but like but, like it's all told through these like really really. Uh, Beautifully, the architect. I'm trying to talk about it by using like architectural terms. You know how the utility of a house is the empty space of the house, right? 
uh, it, the, like a house wouldn't be useful to, you know, the utility of a chair is the space, just the empty space just above a chair, right? It's not the physical, you know, and this is how I feel about Joss's poems, and they have so much to teach me in that way, because I, like I, you know, I, I, this book it works so much through the super saturation that we were talking about, like, it's like very sort of uh, Whitmanian in that way, right? If, if we give you just like this litany of uh, super saturated details. Um, and I think that Joss's work works in the opposite way, where their their poems are sort of uh, the languages, the sort of negative space around the silences, which are really important in the poem. And I keep thinking about silence and what this book has to teach me about silence. Um, so that's another one. I mean, I could I could I could keep going. You know, talk to me after, and I'll give you a list of like twenty more. So it's kind of, it's an editorial question, really. I was interested in what you said right at the beginning of the conversation that we had about. Um, about the record that is, you know, the skip in the record that is an event mm -hmm. that's insufficiently documented by the medium or something, I paraphrase, and you're talking about kintsugi lacquer as well when you're in pottery. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of as, from an editorial point of view, that suggests to me that you think that there is an ideal poem that is poorly translated uh, when it's put into language, you know. If you're talking about a musical event, that's poorly translated to a record. Sure. And I'm interested in what the parallel might be for poetry. Do you think there's something insufficient about language or something broken about it if you're talking about Kintsugi Laka? Maybe that's both of you, um, you know, from an perspective, you're always winnowing away to a perfect poem. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are a lot of ways to go with that question. Uh, you know, obviously, I think that. The writing of a perfect poem or whatever is completely horizontal, you know, this thing that, you know, you would never be able. But I also think that it's true that just like the, the raw mechanics of the enterprise of writing poetry conspire against us, right? Which is to say, written language is an approximation of spoken language, right? That was, that was why it was invented, is that it, it gives us a way to record spoken language. Spoken language gives us a way to relay cognition, you know? Uh, or relay memory, you know, uh, which is to say, written language is uh, written language is twice removed from the source, right? Written language is twice removed from experience, or twice removed from cognition, or twice removed from memory, right? Uh, which is, you know, in in this way, you know, we're we're in we're embarking on this inherently doomed enterprise, right? If we're if we're twice translating everything that we are uh, saying into a poem, if we're trying to touch like one aspect of the elephant, you're never going to get the grandeur of God into a poem. You're never going to get your fear of death into a poem. You're never going to get the beauty of your beloved into a poem, right? The entire in its entirety. You know, in other words, like if your beloved were to vanish from the earth, the poem would not stand for them, right? It's like the Sassina Paun pipe thing. You know what I mean? Like, uh, sorry if anyone actually speaks French. Uh, oh no, um, you know. Uh, it's never, it's, one will never replace the other one, right? One is always an approximation in this way. So when we embark in the writing of a poem, we're sort of embarking in this like gloriously doomed enterprise, right? Uh, to, try to, to try to capture some aspect, right? To try to capture the texture of the elephant, the bristliness of the elephant's tail, or to try to capture mm -hmm. the hardness of the tusk, right? Um, so when, we, when the poem breaks, you know, and poems break, and, a million different ways, and all the great poems break in some way, you know, uh, in, in some way, and, you know, you could, I, you, we could come up with an anthology, I'm sure, uh, tonight, talking about our favorite poems and the ways that they break. Um, but all, all, all poems show that fracture, show that 
uh, show the hand of the maker in some way or show the show the limitations of the maker in some way, you know? Um, uh, yeah, that's what I'd say. What he said. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I don't know. Um, what you said made me think a little bit about the Miwash quote when he talks about um, poetry being sunlight filtering through the clouds onto a rubbish heap. And it's like uh, the the eye of the poet can choose to like illuminate various broken things, mm -hmm. but um, that that's all they can do. And broken things in the right order might make some kind of poetic logic. Mm -hmm. um, there is no perfect poem for me. I don't think. Um, even if you think about Rilke writing about um, Rodin's sculpture and the archaic torso of Apollo, like looking for perfection in other art forms, but the sculptor would be like. There is no perfect sculptor. Have you heard this Bach cantata? You know, hmm. I, I I don't know. I don't think there is perfection. Just broken things uh, rendered beautifully. Maybe uh -huh. is, does that answer your question in any way? Yeah. Oh, for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I agree. I think yes, there is brokenness, but I sort of I feel like they're all perfect in an ephemeral way, and mm. I, I sort of reject the idea as an editor of things being a poor translation because that means that translation has failed as well mm -hmm. and that it's it's doomed in some way and that it's missing something. I don't like the idea that and actually any poem has failed to translate itself mm. Mm. because it is all that it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, we absolutely could and likely will. But uh, but you know, Stephen when Stephen says uh, the poets are priests of the invisible, right? Mm. What he what he's saying is like that priest to be a priest uh, implies a kind of attending, right? It, it, it implies, a, you know, and I think that what we can do is sort of attend to our hour, you know, attend to our hours, uh, like attend to our poems and be really, really dutiful in these ways. And um, I think that you and I might agree that like the best poems are done by people who are like, ma who have made themselves really, really permeable to uh, experience or really, really, you know, made themselves good vessels for holding those things, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we could talk about this for hours. I agree. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>